Hello and welcome to the Queen Trail podcast. Queen Trail, a woman who emphasizes a life of passion expressed through personal style, leisurely pastimes, charm, and a cultivation of life's pleasures. I am Syl Annan, and I invite you to join me in exploring and savoring life's riches and the beauty that surrounds us. In the company of friends, we can laugh, discover, appreciate, and support each other. So I hope that you will join me where I will talk about everything that makes up the rich and diverse fabric of a delightful life. Let's cultivate vibrant conversation together. Welcome. Hey, welcome back. I hope that you had a great week since the last time we got together. I hope you enjoyed my last episode with Ed Cray and have had a chance to listen to some of his cool blues music. Um, I actually just finished putting together a playlist and it's been a while since I created one. So I hope you enjoy it. Check it out. It's on Spotify. It is not on the same um, channel page. I'm not sure what you call it, but it's not on the same one as my podcast. So just look up The Queen Trell and you should be able to find my playlists. There's three of them. Or you can go to my webpage, which is thequeentrailpodcast.com and just uh, listen to it or access it through there. It's really fun. It's electric dance music or EDM. And it's just going to keep you dancing for a long time. I think that right now there's so much stuff going on in in the world. Um, It is a very stressful time for everybody. So I hope you enjoy that. That's not why I put it out there. I've actually been working on it for quite a bit. And I had a lot of my old favorite EDM on there, EDM songs. And I finally feel like it's it's at a good place. So I put it up. So I hope you dance your heart out and enjoy that. Um, it's called Technically Speaking. And let's see, what else did I do since the last time that we talked? I got together with my writers. We're working on that Western, which is called Dark Country. And you can find the Instagram account for Dark Country uh, under Dark Country underscore the series. And it gets updated every once in a while. So there's a few things on there that you could check out, but I'm so excited about this series. We are at a point where we're just wrapping up the final, just pre-production details and getting ready to gear up for that. So more on that to come, definitely. And then the other thing that I did that was a lot of fun was I got to celebrate my friend Brooke's birthday, which was roller skating. We went to a roller skating rink. And the cool thing about it is that she had an undisclosed age birthday to celebrate on 2-22-22. And that undisclosed age is double digits of the same digit as well. So it seemed kind of momentous, right? So we all got together and went roller skating. And it had been a really long time. I Honestly, do not remember the last time that I roller skated after I had kids. So it's been quite some time. Cameron's 25 now. 
I used to li live in the beach cities, and so I would head over to the Hermosa Beach Pier after work every single day of the week, and I'd be there on the weekends as well. I mean, like, I was the beach bunny on rollerblades going down the strand, and at the time, you could actually park almost right up to the strand right there where the Hermosa Beach Pier is. They closed it off some time ago, and now it's pedestrians only. But that's where I would park. I'd get my big old honking heavy rollerblades that, you know, feel like cement boots on your feet. And I'd lace them up. And I'd go all the way to Bologna Bay, which I'm not really sure how many miles that is. I'm going to just take a minute to look it up here. Wow. So that was eight miles each way, 16 miles round trip maybe even a little bit more because I would go as far as I could. And I'm looking at a map that clocks the very beginning of just as you're getting to the Bologna Bay area as eight miles. So it might have been eight and a half. But I would do that every single day and on the weekends. And I loved it. I just love putting those rollerblades on. So after roller skating with Brooke, I'm actually thinking of buying myself another pair of rollerblades because I think that would be a lot of fun, especially with summer coming up. But it was it was so crowded out there. I couldn't believe how many people were there. And, you know, it's so funny because I'm about to put the qualifier in that we were required to wear masks and everybody had to show their proof of, of vaccination. And um, it's just kind of a bummer that that's where we're at, right? I, just before two years ago, nobody would have thought twice. I mean, it what literally wasn't wouldn't have been a second thought going through our minds that we were going into a crowded place and danger might lurk anywhere, or people might not take too kindly to us admitting. I mean, there's there's this guilt. There's this sense of maybe I did something wrong. There's this sense that people aren't going to like you because you went somewhere and had fun. And I think we have to be careful about that. I mean, I'm still coughing from being sick in December. And it's just lingering. I, I said something the other day when I was at the writer's table, because every couple of minutes, you know, I would take a deep breath, especially with talking on the podcast or when you're reading scripts or, you know, anything like that where you're talking a lot, if I take a deep breath, I start coughing. And it's just this residual. I, I'm not sick any longer other than this lingering symptom of having been sick. And one of the writers said, oh, now you know what it feels like to have asthma. And it was kind of a little bit of an eye opener because if you haven't had something, you don't think about it. But um, it's something that people with asthma struggle with. And it just put me in those shoes for a moment. So there's definitely good reason to mask up. But it does make me um, a little bit frustrated. That's just like probably the best word. It just kind of frustrates me that there's this sense of guilt and awkwardness about going places where you're going to go and have fun and actually live life. Um, we're social creatures. And there's this ancient pack animal gene somewhere in us, we really like having fun with each other. And in many ways, that's perhaps the most 
tragic part of COVID. But the good thing is that in LA County, you no longer have to wear masks outdoors. And beginning at midnight this past Friday night, you don't have to wear masks indoors either, unless it's required by the establishment. So that's really good news. It means that the numbers are going down. And I'm looking forward to some normalcy. So yeah, it was it was super crowded. And there were some phenomenal skaters there. I was so impressed by the moves. I was so impressed just by the expert expertise, the agility, the ability to navigate through those big crowds without falling. I showed up in my tutu, my silver jacket, and I had my knee-high socks with the white and red stripes around them. So I was ready to skate, and I definitely did that and had a fantastic time. Skating is a lot like bicycling. You never forget how to do it. Okay, so today I thought I would answer questions, and um, I've got quite a few that have come through. I'm not really sure. I think I'm just going to kind of go around, pick and choose a couple of these and see how long, you know, how many I can answer because, you know, I can talk forever. And some of them are going to require some really long explanations. But let's see. The first one is, how did you come up with the name Queen Trell? And I get that one a lot. You know, where did you come up with that name? I've never heard that word before. And... So originally, this was going to be a two-person podcast. And what happened is that I was trying to find a name that would be appropriate for both Sophie and I, you know, that would just kind of capture our spirit. And that's really hard to do, coming up with names. It's like naming a baby, right? So there's a poem that Sophie wrote me a while ago, and it starts out, Oh, mother, an artistic sunflower who does not smother, you are a queen in the tower. And it's signed off, love your baby sunflower. And I thought, oh, we've got to use the name sunflower. I love sunflowers. They're so pretty. And I started coming up with some titles that included the word sunflower in them. So every single title, I would go and do a search to see if somebody else was using it. And somebody invariably was using the the word, whatever that title was, was already used. It was almost like looking at an exhaustive list of every permutation of titles that used sunflower in them. So when it became evident that Sophie was not going to be able to participate as regularly as we had originally thought. I started looking for names that would represent me. And it was like, I came across the perfect names under Sunflower. and Now I had to change gears. But I came across the word Quintrell. And I did a little bit of research on that. Now, the definition of Queen Trow is a woman who emphasizes a life of passion expressed through personal style, leisurely pastimes, charm, 
and a cultivation of life's pleasures, which is what I say at the beginning of each episode. And I also looked up, how do you pronounce this word? Because interestingly, as you could probably tell from my lexicon, it's pretty big. I am not by any stretch of anybody's imagination, the world's greatest linguist. But I love words. I have always loved them. And I think that's why I pick them up so much. And I don't purposely throw these big words around. They just kind of pop into my brain and out my mouth. And I regularly have people tell me that they have to pull out a dictionary Or I've had people, you know, just straight out ask me, what does that mean? And sometimes I can't exactly explain what it means. I know it's the right word. And then I have to pull out my phone and look it up so that I could give them the exact definition. And it's it's always what I meant for it to be. It's just that I don't have an exact definition for it. So therefore, I am not the world's greatest linguist. I think that there are a lot of a lot of people out there who have a really good grasp, not just of the word, but its exact definition when asked. And that's not me. And I'm okay with that. I just go, okay, hold on, let me pull out my phone, I'm going to tell you exactly what it means, because I want to be precise in what I'm saying, you know, Precision is the key to good communication. And it just helps me learn, you know, it just benefits everyone. So I just do it. So as I said, I did look up the pronunciation of this word, and it's actually Quantrell. One of them specifically said Queentrell instead of Quantrell. And I liked the sound of that better. It sounds better to our American ears. There's a little bit of uh, luxury in that sound, isn't there? So Quantrell as well. But when you put queen in there, you start thinking of crowns and diamonds and jewels and all of that fancy stuff. So that's the pronunciation that I went with. But the word is actually an amalgamation of... Middle English from the late Middle English period, Queen Trow or Quain Trow, which is a person of fashion, and from Middle French, Quantrell, which means vain. Now, one of the things that I love about language, that I love about words, is that they are derived from other words. They literally have roots. And if you follow their roots, you're going to find one word was derived from another word, which was derived from another word, which was derived from yet another word. And it's kind of like those, um, those word puzzles, those those games that you know, are supposed to strengthen your mind, where you start out with one word, and you turn it into a different word by changing one letter each time. So that's something like the word skate, for example, ends up becoming the word camel after a series of single letter changes. And the development of language is similar to that, though not quite as simplified. But it creates this living fabric, this body of communication tools that represent 
the evolutionary changes going on in society and culture. And it's a blend of various languages of of immigrants that are coming in and lending us part of their words so that we can create new words. But most recently, there's been additions of these strange words to dictionaries, the definitive owner's manuals for the spoken word, right? Like lol, which actually is one of my least favorite words, but it's considered a word now. And they are adding more and more words to their dictionary. We're adding these words to our diction. And people get upset about that. And I can see, I can see where you would get upset because instead of saying, gee, that's hilarious, somebody will go, lol. And there's not even any, any real emphasis behind it. There's not, not, you know, when you say, God, that was hilarious. I mean, you've got syllables there that you can emphasize that you can really give some personality to what you're saying versus, yeah, that was lol. And it seems like we're losing something, but we've actually gained a technical language. It is a representation of how much technology has integrated itself into our daily vernacular, our daily language, our, you know, the way that we communicate with one another, we do more via text and via other forms of, com- of, of written shorthand communication. Is that going to become an enormous problem? I think we like to talk a lot. I like to talk, clearly. Um, <laughs> I, I think that we are talkers. I think that, you know, we're social animals somewhere along the line. There is that archaic gene in us that it has, has survived through all of these evolutionary phases that remains pack animal and social animal oriented. So I don't think that we're going to lose our ability to talk. Um, is it going to change? Yeah, we don't speak like Shakespeare did before. Nobody says doth and hath and thither and all of that flowery old English that sounds so silly to our ears now, you know, and it's lost some of that rigidity. And in losing that rigidity, we've allowed this rich flow of other languages to come in. And really, English, even back then, had been birthed from Latin. So it became a splinter language that, you know, we still have a lot of Latin-based words in it. So anyway, I'm just fascinated by language. And so when I come upon a word like Quintrell that of all of these years, this affinity that I have, I mean, Honestly, when I say words, and maybe some of you can relate to this, there's this delicious feel in my mouth to certain words, and Quintrell is one of them. I mean, it's in the enunciation of the word, which is another cool word. It creates this mouthfeel that I love about words. And then there's the whole meaning that comes behind all of that, this whole package that is just so delightful to me. 
So anyway, Queen Trell, late Middle English, a person of fashion, Quantrell, Middle French, vain. And Quantrell came from the word Quante, which meant or means clever and intelligent. And it can also mean quaint. So there's history. There's if you take a look at these roots, each one has a different definition to it. And what's interesting to me is that all that the French did back in the day was add the feminine diminutive to quante to turn it into quantrelle, L, E-L-L-E, which means female. And it went from meaning clever and intelligent, a word that could be applied to a man, to becoming a diminishing commentary when it's applied to a woman. Because women aren't supposed to be clever and intelligent, even if they're wittier than a man, they're supposed to know their place and they're supposed to be quiet. And if you are not, that's a sign of vanity. So um, those are some of the historical clues that you find in words. And of course, I didn't have to go back that far to show the subtle oppressions of women. But the fact that these historical clues are these little details are even within the language within the changing of clever and witty to vain is telling of this long history of women being seen or being pushed anyway forcefully pushed into second class citizenry so there's value in looking at the history of words and there's also value in not jumping to conclusions. So I'm going to be fair here and say that what I was looking at was not an exhaustive um, same for same comparison of words that Quintrell could have meant. So sometimes there's not an exact analog of a word in English. It just hasn't been defined as finely as it has in another language. And I could see where perhaps Queen Trell meant to luxuriate, which can in some ways be synonymous to being vain. But regardless, it still shows a lack of respect and an oppressive quality when it goes from its masculine base to its feminine base. And although it no longer holds those connotations, it's actually in its resurrection in the 21st century, has become a really beautiful word, which is another thing that I love about language. I mean, it's just constantly evolving. And there's no sense in hanging on to what it meant at one time, though it's historically interesting Um, But what I find the other thing that I found really interesting about this is that Queen Trell, it was only used in the mid 15th century. And there was a revival of this word in the 21st century. So it's just very recently that people started using the word again. And people that 
I consider just like way better orators than me have told me that, where'd you find that word? I haven't heard that before. And that's kind of fun. So um, yeah, that's my story with Queen Trell. That's how it came about. And my affinity with words and, you know, a little bit more about just solidifying the fact that I am a gigantic nerd. Um, (laughs) And a proud one at that. So okay, let's see. I've got, I got a question about jobs. Which job here it is, which job have you held that has taught you the most about life? And I think that's kind of a twofold response for that question. So my kids, I, I often say that my kids have taught me at times more about life than I have ever taught them. I love being their mom. I know it's so cliche, but I think that's by design because everybody who is a parent is very proud of their accomplishments and who their kids have become. So for me, it's true, just like it is for so many other parents. I'm really fortunate that I'm super curious and really fascinated with other people, which is why I have my in the company of friends talks because I just find others vastly fascinating. And having kids is kind of like my own little social experiment, not in the the ridiculously mind blowing way that that particular documentary on Netflix of the same name um, comes across, but in that I was able to watch their development, I was able to watch their curiosity, um, their perspective of the world, and just champion it, just really help them develop who they were meant to be. And in so doing, I grew up a lot. Uh, there's a there's a deep maturity. There's a deep appreciation for the world that comes only from being a parent. And I have to interject here that I never wanted to be a parent. I really didn't. I got talked into it by my former husband. And I am very happy that that happened because I just have two amazing human beings in my life that I otherwise would not have that have taught me, like I said, so much. It's It's been an incredible experience that I would in a heartbeat do again. Um, it's just a deeply satisfying journey to take together with these tiny human beings and joining your perspectives of the world and growing from that. It's just been joyful. So I'm just going to say that I'm not going to keep going. um, But yeah, definitely my kids has or being a parent has been one of the most gratifying, life changing, life altering jobs that I've had. And then I'm going to say I've had I've had a lot of jobs because I've I've never really found my niche until just recently. 
I don't have any qualms about admitting that I'm, you know, like it's, it's fine. I've worked at a a lot of different places and, you know, I just kind of think about how we look at failure or, or, you know, we want people to know exactly who they're going to be when they turn 18 and to be experts at it immediately. So it's nice to have certain examples like Thomas Edison, who said that it took a thousand steps, not a thousand failures to invent the light bulb when he was asked by a journalist. Um, I know that's the one that's used often, but Malcolm Gladwell has a formula in his book Outliers, which is an excellent, highly recommended book if you have not read it. It's been out there for a little while. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, But his formula is 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours is what makes you an expert. So... Um, there's some wiggle room. And I think that there's a lot of value in figuring out who you're going to be and kind of dabbling a little bit in different interests. Now, not getting stuck in the fun of dabbling forever. I think that the end game is do you find meaning and purpose in what you're doing? And when that meaning and purpose is no longer there, it is definitely time to move on and try your hand at something else. Because we are each of us a conglomerate of ideas and possibilities and abilities. We just can't do every single one of those. So we do start to narrow our focuses down to one or two or three things that we can do. And really one or two of those ideally should become your skill set, what you present to businesses so that you can monetize it and make a living off of it. But there is a message. There's this message of you've got to go to high school, you've got to go to college. And when you get out, you go directly to your job. And there's no deviance from that. Um, But But there is, I think, you know, you've got two sides of the coin there where you're losing out on something by going one route or the other. And of course, there's lots of gains in both. And I don't think that there's a hard and fast rule of how to do these things. You take a look at people who have become incredibly successful, not from the jobs that they took, but from their creative outputs that had nothing to do with their former training. It's just an affinity. It's just something that was integral to their character, their personality, their skill set that they have now developed into something that's financially viable for them. So um, definitely lots of possibilities to look at, lots of options. Anyway, um, yeah, I've had I've had many jobs and many were all, were life altering. <laughs> Ooh, some of them were very negatively life altering, but I'm going to choose when I worked in medicine. I worked in medicine for about a decade and it was home health. Um it was a, an agency and a pharmacy, a compounding pharmacy. And very shortly after I started working there, I was very young at the time. We got our first AIDS patients. And so this was at pretty much at the start of 
the AIDS epidemic and, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit more into it. Um, speaking of that, I remember going back to roller skating. I remember roller skating when I was a kid. There was a place in Torrance that was called Shamrock. And I remember just waiting in line forever to get into there. I'd take my skates. Usually somebody's mom was dropping a bunch of us kids off there. We would wait in line. And one day I took a copy of Cosmopolitan with me because I knew I'd be in line for quite some time and I wanted to read something. And they were talking about some crazy epidemic called AIDS that was killing people and, you know, all this horrible stuff that was happening. And I'd never heard of it. Most people hadn't heard of it. And I'm reading this magazine and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is just way too dramatic. The bubonic plague has, that ship has sailed. There is no such thing as anything crazy like this. And I see, I see similarities with COVID. Um, but anyway, that's where I learned about AIDS. And I basically dismissed HIV and AIDS with that article because it, it was serious reporting, but in the wrong magazine, you know, they talk about location, location, location. And it just didn't belong in there. Um, I think why it was in there was to warn women. It's a women's magazine. It definitely defends sexual freedom. And so there was a sense of responsibility to let women know that there's this crazy disease out there. I just think it was over-dramatized um, for the majority of the country, especially, you know, if you hadn't heard of it. So a few years went by when I first read that article. I'm going to say maybe about four years before I started working in a medical facility. And at first, we had some very serious patients. We had um, we had patients that I learned so many terms in medicine. And I learned that there was more than just antibiotics out there. There were antimicrobials. We had so many different diseases coming across my desk and we provided medicine for all of that. It was, it was pretty amazing. It was really an eye-opening job. It created, it forged some very deep friendships, especially because we went through so much um, in that short period that nobody could expect. It's the same thing with this pandemic that we're going through with COVID. So uh, we started getting our first patients with AIDS. And I thought about that article, whoa, you know, whoever that reporter was at Cosmo knew their stuff and had their finger on the pulse of the country and what was coming down the pike. We, I mean, we did not get HIV patients. We didn't get HIV patients. We got AIDS patients because there was nothing out there to control HIV. There was nothing out there to control that virus. And the majority of the first patients were men. I remember, I remember talking to, I'm going to call him Jonathan, and his partner, 
Patrick was one of our patients, unfortunately. And there was one day where Jonathan called chatting with me about some questions that he had. And we'd gotten to know each other pretty well. We talked a lot every time. He was he was a talker. And he really needed to talk because he was going through some very serious stuff as the caregiver of somebody with full blown AIDS that he loved. Um, And his piece of advice that day was, honey, don't ever take it up the ass. Oh, Um, I don't know what the conversation was that he'd had way back in the day. Now, we got to put ourselves back to late 1980s, early 1990s, when this was a gay disease. And clearly, Patrick and Jonathan were gay and in a very long relationship at that time. And he was just warning me, this is how you get it. Because that's what the word was out there, that it was not only sexually transmitted, but there was a concern that it was communicable as well. So airborne. And I remember having those conversations with medical people who were unsure still at that time, the nascent, impetuous quality of this virus. How did these people contract it? That was still an unknown. Because you only know at any given moment, all of the information that you have learned up to that moment, anything after that is the unknown. And we enter the unknown every second. So this virus comes out of left field in the realm of the unknown. And science needs to catch up to figure out how to stop it. So um, this was good advice coming from somebody who knew that this is the way that it was spreading mostly. The other way that was known at that time was through um, intravenous injections, drug addicts who were trading needles, reusing them. We knew that it was transmitted via bodily fluids, but we weren't totally sure if it was also transmittable via exhalation. And, you know, now that we're in this second pandemic, in my lifetime, we've had many, many pandemics um, historically as human beings. But uh, during my lifetime, two pandemics and, and now coronavirus, we know how much scientific evidence there is around exhalatory secretions, I guess, for a better word. I'm not even sure if exhalatory is a word. Um, There I go making words up again. But and um, yeah, nobody knew if if that was a possibility, which we now know it was not. And he said, you know, do you know what a flow pen is? And I said, no. And he said, well, a flow pen is a Florence Nightingale pen. And he's like, I have, I have like 20 of those already. And he said, you know, Patrick was such a smart man. He was, he was incredibly intelligent. He, he grad, he took courses at a couple of different big deal universities in the country. I mean, like really big deal ones. 
I'm trying to not breach any confidentiality here or in any way identify these um, these two individuals. And uh, he was a, he was a psychologist and he had a practice in Beverly Hills and we're just living the life, both of them. He, Jonathan was an attorney and Patrick was a psychologist with lots of published papers and, you know, speaking engagements, just very well regarded. And Jonathan had the law, for, law firm and he started to tell me about the little things that were happening to Patrick, the sniffles that then, you know, became a skin rash and degenerated down to other things. And the doctors telling him that, you know, it wasn't anything in prescribing antibiotics and etc. And eventually being diagnosed with AIDS. And he had to make that hard choice of staying, which was not that hard of a choice, but it clearly he did not want to contract this illness. And then the fear of what if he had contracted it? And the drugs at the time were experimental. The treatment was incredibly expensive from doctors. A lot of the insurance companies would not cover these, a lot of these drugs. And, you know, they were like $4,000 a month for one, for one of the medications that they needed to treat one of the multiple opportunistic diseases that would attack these patients. And um, that was my job to get on the insurance companies. And I was really good at it. And the other problem was that a lot of insurance companies would, if you didn't have the better, perhaps more scrupulous agency, they would just drop you. So that happened. And it was a time period when insurance companies were doing that for a lot of different illnesses. It wasn't just AIDS, but they knew that if somebody had AIDS, it was going to be very expensive. And then if they footed the bill, they would pick and choose what they were going to pay for. So that resulted in Patrick could no longer work. And because Jonathan had to take care of Patrick, he wasn't able to work the hours that he had to in the law firm. And anyway, everything just ended up degenerating. They had to move to another location. And then those experimental drugs started causing problems of their own. Because really, those early drugs sought as much to relieve the symptoms and the cruelty of full-blown diseases as they did to find a cure for HIV. There, there had to be a stopgap in the middle. So it wasn't perfect. I, I, you know, I'm a little bit at a loss for words because that is the feeling that everybody had at that time was that that helplessness. But at the same time, there was a stubborn, deliberate um, 
strong sense of purpose that something needed to be changed. And with each experimental medication that was released in the hopes that it would at least stop one of this compendium of diseases that these patients tended to get, um, the carposis sarcoma, the pneumocystis carini pneumonia, the cytomegalovirus, um, extension, cyclometavirus, retinitis, gastritis, etc. Each one of those drugs, there was a hope that it would at least stop one of those or treat one of those so that then we could have a better handle on how to treat the other diseases and eventually get to a place where the virus itself could be treated. I think everybody was trying the best that they could and science needed to catch up to something new. You know, we kind of tend to forget that diseases wiped out entire populations in the past because science had not caught up and it took many, many years for scientists to figure things out. And, you know, there's these names that we're familiar with, Jonas Salk, who discovered the vaccine or formulated the vaccine that has eradicated polio from the population. Um, Benjamin Waterhouse, who developed the vaccine for smallpox. You know, there's things that we know that work, but it took a long time to get them into production, to get them into the public, to get people to accept them. Um, Insulin, that was in that was something that was developed by Elliot Jocelyn for diabetics, not until 1922. I mean, some of this stuff, amazingly, the smallpox vaccine was introduced in 1799. That amazes me. Although the first polio patient was not saved until 1929. And most of the scientific advancements have occurred most recently in the 20th century and the 21st century. Um, But, you know, there's a whole list. The whole purpose of these, of science working to find a cure is to eradicate these diseases, right? And sometimes, um, I want to just interject here because I am talking a lot about vaccines and I'm talking about pandemics and there's this overlap with the current COVID pandemic, the one that we're living through right now. And I am not trying to force an opinion one way or another. I know that each person believes what they want to believe. This is my personal experience, my personal understanding of medicine, something that I lived through prior to the era of social media, where so much information, good and bad, is being distributed. And people have to wade through that sea of information and misinformation to try to come up with their understanding. I was fortunate enough to work in medicine during a pandemic and to see and to be part of a tapestry of very personal stories of hope, tangible pain and loss. And, you know, that 
little bit of magic in that ceaseless effort that I saw that extended beyond professionals in the field. Um, And what I saw then, I have absolutely no knowledge of what is going on now, but I also have absolutely no reason to believe that it's any different. But what I saw then was tireless effort to find a cure. So um, I did want to put that in there because I don't want anybody listening and feeling any more uncomfortable. I think anything that touches on our mortality is an uncomfortable subject, especially when it involves such difficult dilemmas, when it involves ethical dilemmas. And certainly with the AIDS epidemic, because it was originally branded as a gay disease, it touches on a lot of religious dilemmas as well. Um, Society and culture is just so convoluted. And it's just it is it's a tapestry of beliefs of ideals of dogma. Um, and we're just wading through sea after sea after sea of information for each and every single dilemma that presents itself to us. So I did want to put that in because if you believe something about COVID, I'm not trying to change your mind. I am just telling you my story and my experience of working in medicine during an epidemic. So here comes HIV, and nobody has a medication for it. So we're back to the drawing board that, you know, it it was it was a very uncertain time. So as a result, the treatment that Patrick received was not providing the cure that he needed. Um, He continued to deteriorate until that beautiful mind, the way that Jonathan explained it, that beautiful mind was destroyed. And he was having a really hard time even recognizing the most important person in his life, which was Jonathan, who was regularly taking care of him. And by that time, they were basically living in the slums. And um, needless to say, eventually, Patrick did pass away. And it was just really tough. There were I've got hundreds of stories like that, which is amazing that I could say that I personally spoke to or met, conservatively speaking, a good 200 patients at least, who came through there as AIDS patients and ultimately succumbed to that illness. And just seeing the doctors and the nurses and the medical community try so hard to save these patients to change the course of their future health and not being able to do so. It was just devastating to watch the families come together and, and, you know, just realize that everybody was doing the best that they could, that there was progress going on, but the, the progress was very slow and that there was just the survival mechanisms that came into play It was a while. It was a while. Mostly it was all males and a lot of them were from 
the LGBTQ community, which was just ravaged by this um, disease. Um, And, you know, I have to say it wasn't all LGBTQ patients. There was another patient who I will call Robert, and he was in a catastrophic car accident. He was an educator. He had a family. He, um, he was just a really, you know, he was the guy next door, lived in a middle income community. And he was struggling to pay his bills. He was really struggling because his insurance company was was picking and choosing. And this is how, you know, I want to make it clear that I was not at patients' bedsides, that I was not a medical expert. I was an expert at getting insurance companies to pay. And that's one of the reasons why I got to talk to so many patients. I know that if you were to talk to the healthcare professionals that I worked with, they would have some um, more poignant stories than the ones that I do. So I was talking to Robert and he told me about the accident. He told me about needing three blood transfusions in order to save him from this accident. And he survived it. And for, you know, he, he just thought he was such a fortunate man. And eventually the telltale signs of the beginning of, of having contracted the HIV virus showed up. And that was through the blood transfusion is how that happened. Um, They weren't, they weren't checking blood at the time for HIV. There was no knowledge that HIV was in the population that staff would not have known they were doing everything that they could to save this man. And I'm not sure what the protocols are this these days. You know, if some new disease comes in, how is anybody going to check the blood? It, it, it just puts you right back there again, just like with anything. Um, if you don't know about it, if it's never been a thing, if it's never been some, something within the knowledge base of the community that is using a life-saving measure, people have to operate on what they know. And it, it, it just, it doesn't come in. Um, and that's what happened to Robert. So a few years went by and that's when he showed up. Um, as a patient where I worked. And he was telling me one day that he knew he had to he had to quit his job as an educator and he loved those kids so much. And he was behind on his house payments and he had to give his car up. Um, and his whole life revolved around so much that this disease had taken away from him and was yet to take from him, which was that he wasn't going to get to see his son graduate from high school. And he knew that already. And he wasn't going to get to watch his daughter. He wasn't going to get to walk her down the aisle. And he knew that already. There was so much. (laughs) I was not expecting to get this emotional over this. Um, 
it, that was a very impactful time for me. Um, and so many people that worked during that time period or were affected specifically by the AIDS epidemic. Um, maybe I should have chosen another question, but I'm really glad that I am sharing this story with you because there were just so many lessons like Robert's and Patrick's and Jonathan's and so many others. Um, so with Robert, the thing was that he said it with such grace and ineffable acceptance and such dignity. And then he went down the list of all of the things that he had gotten to do and all of the things that he was still going to get to do. So uh, definitely up there, definitely up there. One of the deepest conversations that I'd ever had. A couple of weeks went by and I get a letter from the insurance company saying, based on my advocacy, they were going to cover his doctor's bill. But you know, insurance companies don't cover everything. There's always a copay. So they covered 80%. And that left him with a $3,000 balance that he couldn't pay. But I did recognize it as a big win. This is a great win. We got the insurance company to pay for this medication. Once you do that, You've established a precedence. You've established usual and customary payment for a drug or a procedure or whatever it is. And so it was, you know, it, it was it was a big victory to get that 80% payment. But there was still that $3,000. And so I went and talked to my boss and I said, is it okay if I write, write off this balance? And she said, yes. Well, of course, the insurance company had sent out two notifications, one to me and one to Robert. I, you know, I didn't call him right away. I I got busy with other patients that I needed to advocate for and and other billing that I needed to do. And, and, you know, it was just, it was a very busy time, but I, I did write off Robert's account right away. And the following week, I get a check for a few hundred dollars from Robert in the mail with a little note that says, I'm so sorry, a very apologetic, lovely little note. He was just so sorry that he couldn't pay the amount in full. And I thought, wow. So I wrote void across the chuck with a nice little thank you note. And I said, the insurance company is paid and we've written off the balance. This man came into the office in tears with a potted plant for me. It's really overwhelming for a very young person. I, Like I said, I was maybe 22. I, I don't even think I was 22 yet. And you've, you're, you've got people who are at the end of their lives sharing with you their, their hopes, their dreams, their philosophies, the grace um, and it really molds you for the rest of your life. You know, it just changes your perspective. Like you start to realize what's really important in life, what is not, where happiness lies. And, you know, I think that's why purpose and meaning are so important to me. Because from that, you you do gain a lot of contentment. And 
we did start to get the women coming in. And um, I, I don't want to drop names. We had a lot of, you know, I live in Los Angeles. So we did have some high profile patients. And there was a woman. And this woman had also had a blood transfusion, this high profile person had a blood transfusion. Um, and she came in and, you know, we knew who she was. And the thing was that this blood transfusion occurred while she was giving birth. She'd been in a accident that triggered contractions because she was late enough in her pregnancy. It triggered the contractions. And while they were giving her the blood transfusion, her baby was being born. It, it just was all happening simultaneously. You can just imagine the ER room at that moment and the chaos and one team trying to save the baby and another team trying to save the mother. And that HIV tainted blood went into her bloodstream and crossed that placental barrier before the baby was born. Several years went by, several years went by, they were fine. You know, she was definitely not at a high risk category. The baby was fine. Mom recovered. Everything seemed fine. And in fact, she got pregnant with a second child, not knowing that she had HIV. She just thought she had a cold that wasn't going away. She thought she had allergies. And then, you know, she would get these weird little things. But nobody was looking at the fact that she perhaps had HIV. And her HIV turned into full-blown AIDS. And so did the child's. So did both of the children's. And that's when things really changed. That's when financial, some serious financial muscle and advocacy, like even stronger advocacy was put behind finding a cure for this terrible, terrible virus because the celebrity community got behind it. Because a lot of people, frankly, saw a mom and two children who had no business being sick with this disease dying. And so at that point, there were a lot of advances that were made in the treatment of AIDS and specifically HIV. So that today, there's medication out there. I mean, you know, if you watch TV, you've seen the ads. You can have HIV and be fine. It's like having um, viruses because once a virus gets in your body, it never goes away. The chickenpox virus, it's a herpes virus, herpes zoster virus. And, you know, a lot of people are not walking around with chickenpox because it lays dormant in your spinal column. But certain stressors can result in it activating and you can either get chicken pox or you can get um, shingles is part of it. And just like that, HIV lays dormant in your body. So you take medication for it now. And many, many, many years later, I am not going to share who this person is, somebody who's very, very close to me until, you know, he gives me an okay. Um, He started chatting with me. This was in 2012. Um, So this was 
10 years after advancements. I definitely, I didn't realize walking away from it, um, how much PTSD was associated with the term HIV. And so I was talking to this person very close to me who casually mentioned that he had HIV and I burst into tears. And he's he's very, um, very in control of his emotions. Such a dear. And, you know, just kind of like, why are you crying? And he said, you didn't know this? And I said, no, I didn't. And I'm thinking, you know, it just threw me right back into that time period, into the patients who came in and asked if they could see a picture that was in a frame on my desk that I would hand them or had asked me to help them decipher something that they were reading. And then two months later, they were blinded by cytomegalovirus retinitis, which was part of this, these opportunistic illnesses. Um, so it just threw me right back into that time period. And he said, Oh, no, honey, no, I've had this for whatever number of years it was at that time. And then I was dumbfounded. And he said, it's never going to turn into full blown AIDS unless I stop taking it or I do something really deleterious. And it is now 2022. It's 10 years later. And this dear, dear person in my life remains vibrant and healthy and um, a big part of my life still because of the advancements of that time period. So um, I hope that, you know, was not too much of a downer, but I would say that job. I am incredibly grateful about the time that I spent in medicine and my luck in being able to meet just so, so many courageous people that just, you know, gave their all. Just just the grit and the determination and the unity. Okay, so I'm going to uh, move on from that to, is there something funny? I think we need some levity here. Okay, somebody asked me about how I always say that I'm not musical, but I can whistle and clap. And they wanted to know if I ever had played an instrument. And I did. I did. When I was a kid, for whatever reason, my mom decided that I needed to play the accordion. So... (laughs) She got me accordion lessons, and I think I was like in second grade, so what, seven years old, something like that. And this accordion weighed more than I did. I hated it. I absolutely hated the accordion. I did learn how to play it, which today, as somebody who is not musical at all, just amazes me. I mean, what an intricate instrument. The keys on one side, on the left side, you're hitting the keys. On the right side, you're hitting buttons. And all at the same time, you're opening and closing these bellows. And you're, you know, you're, you've got to lean the top or the bottom in. And there, there's, there's a whole entire technique to playing this instrument. And it weighs a ton. And mine was like, white mother of pearl 
with white bellows. I mean, it was it was loud and, uh, you know, something that Liberace would have definitely appreciated. So every weekend, my mom would take me to this music studio, usually with me kicking and screaming in the backseat because I didn't want to play the accordion. And her just, you know, deciding that it didn't matter what I did, I was going to go and play it. I just remember in the summertime, it was so bad. I would wear shorts and the bellows would pinch my thighs. And I did. I know. I think that finally my mom gave up the struggle because I hated the accordion so much. And then I didn't take any lessons again until I was in middle school. And at that point, there was an orchestra and I decided that I wanted to play in the orchestra. So I learned how to play the viola. And I played that for three years. Is that right? Seventh, eighth, I guess two years. Yeah, at that time, I think middle school was two years. I don't think it was three years, but maybe it was. I, you know, ancient, I can't remember. So I played it, I played it throughout middle school. And I got pretty good at it. I even played it on my graduation. So that was kind of fun. And then at a certain point in, let me see, it probably was like 20, 21 years ago or so. So it's been a bit, I'm, I'm just thinking the age of my kids, where they were then. I went over to one of my girlfriend's homes and she had this ancient piano in the garage. It's a upright grand by the Empire Piano Company of New York. And it was just sitting in her garage and it had been in there for years. And we happened to be out there one day. She goes, I I really, I love it, but I don't have any place to put it. So I asked her how much she wanted for it. And she said, I really like that stroller. It was a tandem stroller, but instead of side to side, it was front and back seats. And it was like this giant Cadillac that was such a pain. And she said, how about if you just trade me that stroller that you don't want for the piano? And I'm going, I can't do that. That piano is worth way more than the stroller. So we worked out a amount in addition to the stroller, and I had it transported to my home, 500 pound piano, at least. I mean, that thing weighs a lot. And so I've got that here, I opened up the top, and inside is handwritten in pencil in this very flowery, lovely handwriting. The oldest date is 1900 that it was tuned 122 years ago. I mean, I have history sitting here in my home. So I did take a piano class. I learned how to play it at the college. And that's really cool. I didn't know exactly how that was going to work. But they have keyboards and headphones and everybody can mess around on their piano and nobody hears a sound. And then growing up, my kids learned how to play it. I stopped playing it. I just, there's so many things in the world that I want to do. And I, I tend to really have this affinity for writing and speaking. And I'm always drawn back to that, even though I will dabble in other creative things. Um, I always tend to come back to this and I I end up dropping other things because I find that I don't have the time 
or my interest wanes. And I think that's kind of what happens with music, which is why I'm not musical. And that's okay. So my kids got to play it for a really long time. And yeah, that's my musical background. Oh, I learned how to play the ukulele for a short time. I might have mentioned that in a previous episode. So I was sitting there and I thought, you know, I'm spending way too much time on social media. I'm just doom scrolling. This is ridiculous. And the same amount of time that I'm spending on doom scrolling, I'm going to spend learning to do something new. So I learned how to play one song on the ukulele, which was Over the Rainbow, somewhere over the rainbow. And then I set it down, started to learn how to play Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys. And I started to learn how to play Vivirstein Ida by Mana. I'll put them both in the show notes, um, along with anything else that I've talked about here that belongs there. Um, I just needed to practice. I don't think that I'm ever going to get my 10,000 hours in at playing an instrument. I have definitely put them in to writing. I've put them into into speaking. I've put them into cooking. And I put, you know, a good amount into other things. But I don't think music is going to get that attention. Anyway, um, there is that. And I think I'm going to start stop talking, not start, but stop talking because this is a pretty long episode already. So don't forget to keep sending me your questions. I have a whole slew here that I wasn't even able to get to. I do try to respond to them personally as well. So if I didn't get to your question, please look in your email box or whatever mode of communication you use to get get a hold of me. I absolutely love getting your questions. I love getting your suggestions. It really means a lot to me. Don't forget to check out the show notes. Don't forget to check out the new playlist that I put up today. Um, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. There's so much coming up soon. Be sure to follow me on social media and the dot com where I'll post updates, upcoming topics, recipes, and so much more. I've got, like I said, many more in the company of friends talks coming up that I'm super excited about. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the dot com at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E double L E podcast. And as always, until next time, I am still Annan, the Queen Trail, and I wish you passion, grace, elegance and beauty.